What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In 1973, an American psychiatrist recruited volunteers to pretend to be mentally ill. The resulting study recounting their experiences was hugely influential, but a new book casts much of that research and its conclusions into doubt. And Berlin is known for its clubbing scene, but famous venues are closing left and right. Many blame gentrification. Our correspondent, no stranger to the dance floor, says the scene isn't disappearing, just changing with the times. But first... In Britain, a cabinet reshuffle, when the prime minister reorganizes the key figures around him or herself, can be dramatic, messy, even humiliating. But most expected that Boris Johnson's first major reorganization yesterday would be modest. The Economist's prediction? The night of the short knives. Instead, there was an unexpected moment of high drama from Sajid Javid, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Treasury Secretary and Keeper of the National Budget. He resigned. Good afternoon. Why do you resign, Mr. Javid? Dominic Cummings forced you out. Lovely to see you. Mr. Javid might have stayed, but he would have had to fire all of his own advisors and replace them with a team appointed by Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his chief aide, Dominic Cummings. I don't believe any self-respected minister would accept such conditions, and so therefore I thought the best thing to do was to go. In addition to a shakeup in other departments, yesterday's upheaval represents a significant erosion of the Treasury's independence. A cabinet reshuffle starts with those ministers who are going to be ousted being told by the Prime Minister that their services may not be required. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist and a frequent haunter of Westminster's halls of power. And then those who are going to fill the jobs are invited in one by one. And if you remember that the fear of being called into the head study when you were at school, I think it feels a bit like that, even for seasoned ministers, that walk of delight or shame up Downing Street, all the press bank of cameras watching you, can't be an easy one. And and Mr. Javid's walk, how did that look? Sergeant Javid, the now ex-chancellor, looked actually pretty confident. I think he was making a point that he was not prepared to take the deal on the terms that was offered by the Prime Minister. This was clearly such a a clash and seems to have taken place or come to a head so quickly that he was, I'm out of here. And that was the walk. So the deal that was on offer was that he could stick around only if he basically got rid of his whole team. Why, Why was that the deal that was on the table? Boris Johnson elected with a big majority, very frustrated, I think, in the last parliament by not being able to get on with the business of government as he wants to shape it, felt that the chancellor and the chancellor's team were somewhat in the way. 
So having guaranteed to Mr. Javid that he would keep his job very publicly at the end of last year, he then said, well, you can keep it, but you can't have this team of advisors around you. And I think the underlying tension there is that they had different views about spending. They had different views about some key areas of economic policy and that Boris Johnson was effectively uh, trying to grab hold of the decision-making process. If you don't have your advisors, it's very hard to put together a strong policy perspective that could differ from Number 10's. Mr. Javad simply said, no, he'd already lost one advisor on the whim of, of Downing Street. He wasn't going to lose any more. And I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back, as you say. So you say this, this was ultimately down to differences over spending and economic policy. How so? Sajid Javid comes from a tradition you might call austerity light. He would accept some loosening of the corset on spending, but he would still, I think, want some constraint and he would see some risk in splurging or splashing the cash. I think Boris Johnson thinks that everything has really changed. He's got this big majority. He can take more risks and that the austerity years really need to be put behind him. And he wants to spend money, particularly on the north of England, in those places where the Conservatives have made gains, because he thinks that will nail down those gains and keep him in power for longer. And that has been around that has bubbled between the two of them. The obvious danger here is that the Treasury and Number 10 being too closely aligned has some risks of its own in that prime ministers are more interested in short-term political goals rather than long-term fiscal ones. And that balance has often been a bit up and down in the British political system. And there's often been a bit of a a competition. But in this example, it's happened very brutally and very swiftly that power has moved to one end of the seesaw to Boris Johnson's view. As has happened before with Mr. Johnson, there's a lot of talk about the the power dynamic between him and his chief aide, Dominic Cummings, the, uh, some would say, power behind the throne. What does this episode tell you about that? Dominic Cummings, sometimes called the Dark Lord around Westminster, only half as a joke, I think, is a very powerful figure, had also clashed with Mr. Javid. I think this decision to be so tough on the Chancellor was primarily the prime ministers, probably driven on, egged on by his uh, advisor. There have been other arguments that Dominic Cummings has lost recently, so his power is not absolute. But I think if Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings have a vision of a direction they want government to go, you put yourself in great danger as a minister if you lie down in the road. They will simply roll over you. So is that to say then that that we'll end up with a government that is entirely made up of uh, of loyalists, of, of yes-men, of people living in fear? I'm not sure that there will all simply be yes-men and women, but it's very clear that you kind of have to get behind a Boris vision of what is important and what is less important. Has he left enough room for independent advice and for those who think a bit differently or may send up a warning message of things that could go wrong, well, I think that is the the great risk that he's taken here with a centralization of power over the key decisions. Which brings us neatly on to Mr. Javid's replacement. Tell tell me more about him. Rishi Sunak, mid-30s, very trusted uh, by Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, but also the very interesting backstory of his own. He has also got a absolutely classic Oxford to banking CV. But as a small boy, he helped his mother, who ran a pharmacy, to to do the adding up and and the accounts. He's very good and gifted with numbers, which you could say is pretty good going for a chancellor, not always the case. It would be, I think, unfair to say to someone who's obviously come very far already in life and, and politics that he's 
only there as a nodding dog. The difference is the constraints are drawn. A kind of corset has been placed around the work that he can do. The budget's due in four weeks' time. We don't know whether it's going to go ahead. But the country needs stability, and I think Number 10 will not want to delay it for very long. I think it will differ in some ways from the budget that uh, Mr Javid would have given. And, in effect, it will have two authors. One will be the Chancellor, but the signature very prominently underneath it will be the big sprawling hand of Boris Johnson. And all of the attention has gone on to, uh, to this, this, this debacle with Mr. Javid and not so much on all of the other uh, reshufflings within the cabinet. Taken as a whole, what does that, that whole story tell you about what Mr. Johnson and indeed Mr. Cummings want for Britain? The overall message of the reshuffle is that Brexit is done, that those wounds can be healed and that Britain can get on selling itself as global Britain in the world. That's that confidence, that front foot feeling that Boris Johnson often does exude. It isn't really a particularly balanced left and right cabinet in conservative terms. And that's probably a bit of a difference. He has the majority. He's got the team. He's got the power. And now he really wants to go. And that's the feeling that's been put behind this. Let's see where that ends up. And thank you very much for joining us. Lovely to be here. In 1973, David Rosenhan, a psychologist and professor at Stanford University, published a groundbreaking study. The paper that he wrote on being sane in insane places purported to be the findings of his going along with seven so-called pseudo-patients whom he'd recruited to different mental hospitals and representing themselves as having psychiatric illnesses. Henry Hitchings reviews books for The Economist. All they said was that they kept hearing voices. They kept hearing three words. The words were thud, empty, hollow. The thesis, I suppose, was that this would be enough for them to be admitted. And, according to the paper, it was. David Rosenhan, who wrote the study, claimed the volunteers were all committed, on average for 19 days. Most were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Underpinning this was Rosenhan's sense that mental institutions, asylums, were, were not fit for purpose, that the people presiding over them were basically incapable of distinguishing between sane and insane. Rosenhan also questioned the treatment and dehumanization of patients at hospitals. And he really wanted to, I suppose you could say, kick at the very foundations of psychiatry as a discipline. And so when the study came out, how much impact did it have? The impact that the study had was was huge. By the late 1980s, in other words, you know, about 15 years after the publication of the study, 80% of introduction to psychology textbooks referenced it 
And it is still widely studied by psychology students. Within the field itself, people recognize the need to be a lot more statistically minded, to be a lot more rigorous in their practice, to be a lot less wafty. There was a kind of uh, sort of nebulousness which had become really quite acceptable within psychiatric practice. Well, you know, in many ways, I, I saw myself in that study. Susanna Cahalan is the author of a new book on Rosenhan's research called The Great Pretender. In 2009, I was very sick. I was uh, psychotic. I was hallucinating and I had seizures. And I ended up in a hospital with various misdiagnoses, including bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder. Um, and after about a month, I was properly diagnosed with a very new illness called autoimmune encephalitis. And that is basically when your immune system targets and attacks the brain and can create a host of um, psychiatric symptoms. And so after I emerged from that, I wrote a memoir about that called Brain on Fire. My illness very much blurs that boundary between psychiatric and neurological. And so it kind of raised the question of, of what is a mental illness and how is psychiatry getting these wrong or right? And then the study was actually introduced to me by two neuroscientists who basically said I was a modern-day pseudo-patient, kind of testing the nature of diagnosis. And that really intrigued me. And so I read the study. And, you know, it wasn't just the misdiagnosis that I found so interesting, which is which is kind of the, the big takeaway from the paper. But there are other takeaways about being treated differently because you have a psychiatric condition versus a physical condition. The depersonalization that comes along with that, you know, that first time I read it, I really became a fan of the paper. And, and then I thought, there's more of a story here than, than meets the eye, because I just, I just was so kind of invested in the story, and I wanted to talk to the participants. And so that started me off on um, a six-year odyssey. And so in the, in the course of, of chasing that odyssey, then, what, what did you find out about the, the study's author? Well, you know, I found out that David Rosenhan, who was a Stanford professor, you know, he's a very charismatic, seductive kind of guy. I found out he was one of the pseudo-patients, and he went undercover for nine days at Haverford State Hospital. And, you know, it, his experience was, was, was really profound. But, you know, the more I started to peel back, the, the more questions started to emerge. His own experience, which recorded in, in the paper, started to unravel for me. I, I found medical records that really painted a very, very different portrait of the experience than was written in the paper. David Rosenhan had actually, among other um, symptoms, had said he was suicidal, which makes the misdiagnosis, it, it makes it more understandable. And actually, I talked to a lot of psychiatrists who said, even today, if he would have gone to a hospital and said, I'm suicidal, that really you have to admit someone. And so did you track down people who really were part of the original study? I did, yes. One of them was a man named Bill Underwood. He had never talked about his role, and he was undercover for seven days at an Agnew State Hospital. You know, he just described the, the daily indignities of, of being a patient at Agnews. But, you know, uh, he did not collect any data during his time. And, and if he hadn't collected these kind of very specific pieces of data, like the average number of minutes psychiatrists spent on the ward, you know, who, who was collecting this data? I learned about another participant named Harry Lando, who was not actually among the eight original volunteers, but was a footnote 
in the piece that says that one of their participants was removed because they did not adhere to this kind of standardized symptoms. So I tracked the footnote down and found that he had a vastly different experience. Though he was misdiagnosed and spent 19 days hospitalized, he described his time as positive. He had a a kind of wonderful time. He was a very unhappy graduate student and the hospital was kind of light, bright, and airy. They sat around singing Peter, Paul, and Mary. He was in a kind of depressive funk, and the place really helped him, and the nurses were really involved, and you know the patients had, had a lot of camaraderie. So it was a totally different portrayal of psychiatric care than was in the paper. And that really shook me because I thought, okay, well, Rosenhan had an opportunity to present a more nuanced view, uh, you know, an, an example of one hospital where they were actually doing things right, and instead he discarded the data and made him a footnote. In sum, we should just take that original paper and and tear it up. I mean, there's all kinds of malfeasance going on here. I, I think it's more complicated, I, and I understand why people would, and I think that it shouldn't be taught straightforwardly. But I do think that it's important I mean, I think that there are some very important takeaways about the idea of the differences, you know, how mental illnesses are treated differently from physical ones and this idea of stigma. That's really important. And so, Henry, with the benefit then of the outcome of this detective story and quite a bit of hindsight, what do you suppose all of this tells us about psychology, psychiatry today? Well, I think the worrying thing is that by focusing us on a hoax on someone who constructed a a kind of great pretense, it can create the impression that the whole of psychiatry is is corrupt and dishonest and specious, which I don't think is the case. There are vast numbers of people who have been hugely benefited by this. And yet at the same time, we're seeing now quite a lot of famous experiments very influential experiments like Stanley Milgram's experiments or Philip Zimbardo's prison experiments, we're seeing these not stand up to scrutiny. And that's really bad because people extrapolate from that that the entire discipline is sort of, you know, its foundations are sand. Henry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Cities are where musical innovation flourishes, whether it's the bossa nova of Rio de Janeiro or the surf rock of Los Angeles. To the music buff, the sounds of these cities are as recognizable as the sights. For trendy Berliners, that sound is techno. The special thing about going out in Berlin is that it brought lots of people into the city from many other countries. I think it's it's a very rugged scene, just real, you know. They do things right over in Berlin. Basically, you can party from Tuesday till Monday. The people really, really enjoy techno and being together on a dance floor with other people that you barely know and sharing a good moment, and it's kind of uh, liberating. But gentrification could be threatening the vibrancy of the scene. So commercial rents are going up in Berlin. A lot of owners of buildings are deciding that it's more profitable for them to convert them into offices or co-working spaces. And that means that from time to time, a beloved club has to shut down. Tom Nuttall is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. 
So the latest example is a club called Griesemuller, which is in an old pasta factory. Griesemuller is a beloved institution. Lots of people are upset that it's going to be closed to make way for office space, but they were certainly making the most of its last hurrah. I entered on Saturday afternoon and didn't leave until Monday morning at 8am. Lights finally went on and the last of our song was played. Partly down to the fear of not being able to get back in, but mostly down to the mesmerising atmosphere. I literally saw people like coming and entering the venue via the adjacent canal on inflatable boats. They need to get into the party, it was that strong. It was the most emotional clubbing experience of my life. So what about the club owners and the clubbers? How can they fight what they see as a juggernaut of gentrification? They don't really have that many tools to fight back against this steady rise in rental prices. I mean, there are various things that they can do. Some of the club lobbyists, they're trying to influence a change in federal legislation, which would change the definition of a nightclub. They're put into the same grouping as brothels or casinos, whereas they want to be made equivalent to art galleries or theatres or museums. I think most people realise that things like this are not really going to make a huge difference to the overall economic changes that are making life difficult for some clubs. What do you make of that move then to have clubs classified as cultural institutions? I mean, that you make it sound as if it's, it's clear that clubbing is very much part of the cultural fabric of the city. Clubbing has a very deep-rooted history in Berlin. It goes right back to the fall of the wall 30 years ago, when you had in the former East a lot of unused, maybe post-industrial spaces that were very quickly taken over by squatters, ravers, marginal entrepreneurial types, who created some legendary club spaces in their time. There was a sort of Wild West underworld feeling that persisted for a while. Those days have long gone, but then they were never going to last forever anyway. One of the funny things about the clubbing scene in Berlin is that for a scene that might like to consider itself forward-looking and futuristic, it's absolutely drenched in nostalgia. And even the music itself, oddly, is strangely conservative. Berlin is not actually necessarily the best place to come if you're seeking experimentation and innovation in music. You have this steady stream, as one person put it to me, techno on tap, so you know very much what you're going to get. It sounds pretty much the same as it did 10 years ago, but there's a lot of people who like that, a lot of people who want it, and a lot of people who think that it deserves protection. But as much as people are upset about these sort of classic venues closing down, you don't think that that there's a grave danger for the music scene in Berlin more generally? I think it's been a little bit exaggerated. And I understand why. When you have these venues like Griesemuller or KitKat, which is a legendary fetish club, which is also threatened with closure, this is really painful for some people who have turned these venues into second homes, more or less. But the world of clubbing is always going to change. It's always going to involve churn, places closing, places opening. You talk to long-time clubbers here and they do say that not only are places shutting down but the atmosphere in places that have been around for a long time is changing as well. There are more tourists coming, feels like less of a place for regulars and as more and more outsiders turn up. Some people describe to me a sense of gentrification inside the clubs themselves and I understand that this is really important for a lot of people but if you compare Berlin to almost anywhere else in the world then there is no peccadillo, there is no fetish, there is no desire that can go uncatered for in the Berlin nightlife. It's all still there. Almost as many places are opening up as are shutting down. When's the last time you went in a club and it was dark but came out and it was daylight? 
<laughs> that was probably about a year ago. I went to a place called the Golden Gate and I came out in an absolutely foul mood because I'd had a huge argument with the people in the cloakroom who couldn't find my coat. But I, I had a pretty good time for the rest of the night. You know, that's the fun thing about Berlin is that going clubbing doesn't have to be a sort of a fringe activity or a, a sort of a, a strange marginal thing that you only do if you're living on the edges of society as some people like to imagine. It has this wonderful combination of being a totally mainstream activity in the sense that it's open to all sorts of people and all sorts of ages, while at the same time still providing you with a very different sort of experience that is so far removed from your everyday life. And that's the combination that makes it special. And that's the combination I suspect is probably going to be with us for a while yet. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com.